Dennis Kinlaw was a professor of Old Testament history, theology, and languages. He had the ability to make the Word of God come alive, and we believe wholeheartedly in the power of God's Word to change lives through the Holy Spirit. We hope this message will quicken your interest in God's redemptive story. Our scripture lesson this evening is found in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Familiar portion, I would like to read first the first eight verses and then pick up a paragraph in verse 12 through verse 17. Paul writing to the Christians in Rome. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified. With him. In these evenings that we've been spending together, we've been talking about what it means to have the mind which was in Christ Jesus. That is a theme which is introduced in the Gospels in the New Testament and then picked up and developed rather extensively in the letters of Paul. I was fascinated to find that John Wesley was enamored by that expression the mind which was in Christ Jesus. And so uh, I checked through a number of the places where he uses it. I was surprised to find that for Wesley, the expression to have the mind which was in Christ Jesus was synonymous with salvation. To be saved meant to have the mind which was in Christ Jesus. In other passages, you will find that Wesley uses it synonymously for what he considered the highest level of Christian living in this world, where he speaks of one who knows 
what perfect love is, or as he called it, Christian perfection, or entire sanctification, where a person's heart has been cleansed and a person lives in the power of the Spirit, as we have already heard about tonight. Now, uh, basically, what Wesley was saying is, and what I think the New Testament says, when Christ died on the cross, he died so that I do not have to live the way I think I ought to live, but I can not only know, but have within me the power to live acceptably to him the way he wants even a person like me to live. We've dealt primarily with three passages of Scripture in relation to this. One night we looked at the Gospel of John and noticed how the temple completely misunderstood Jesus. The shock is that the temple had been waiting for a thousand years for him to come, and that was one of the roles of the chief priest, to recognize the Messiah when he appeared. But when Jesus came, you will remember it was the temple that led the way to see to it that he was crucified. It is possible for the church not to think the way Christ thinks, because he did not think the way they thought, and they did not think the way he did. They had their own ideas of how he was supposed to act. But when he came, he didn't act the way they thought he should act. He didn't do what they thought he should do. He didn't say what they thought he should say. And so they took him and they crucified him. We looked also at the Gospel of Mark, where you see, not the temple, but the very twelve apostles of Jesus. The ones who had lived with him for, what, three years? They had eaten with him daily. They had slept with him. They had heard his public discourses. They had heard his private conversations. They themselves had had the privileged opportunity of quizzing him at great extent, privately, when there was no one there but just Jesus and the twelve. They had heard his teaching, and they had sensed his heart and his mind, and they had come to the place where they believed. They believed that he was the Christ, and they had come to love him as well. But as we said, when they reached that point at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked them who people thought he was, when they gave their answers, he then turned and said, Who do you think I am? And they said, We believe that you're the Christ. And Jesus said, Good. Now you know who I am. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. And he told them how he was to go to Jerusalem, There he would be seized, he would be persecuted, he would be brutally mistreated, and then he would be crucified. He would die, and he would rise. And Peter turned to rebuke him, and Jesus said to him, Peter, you don't think the way God thinks. You don't have the mind that God has for you. You still think according to the flesh. And as Jesus then began to talk to them about the cross, About his passion, there was not a single disciple that understood. They simply mentally bleeped out. They could not comprehend what he was saying. But we notice that all of the negative marks about those disciples, when you get into the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit has come to fill them, all of those are reversed. And the first thing that Peter does after the Spirit is descended upon him is to stand up and preach exactly the kind of thing that Jesus had been saying to him for six months, that it is through that suffering of Christ and the cross of Christ 
that the world has the possibility of redemption. We uh, looked also last week at Philippians. Now here Paul is not talking to his twelve disciples, nor to the temple. The temple did not understand, his twelve disciples did not understand after three years, so you can be a Christian and not understand. But he's now talking with converts of his, a church that was born out of raw paganism in the city of Philippi. It began with the latest prayer meeting down to the riverbank. You will remember that as he preached, people came to know Christ, and then the battle was joined, and you will remember Paul and Silas were thrown in prison, brutally beaten, but delivered. Paul had a very tender place in his heart for those Philippians for the rest of his day. Paul is now in prison again, and he's writing to his personal friends back in Philippi. And he says, I rejoice in how God has led you. Now you know him. Now you're walking with him. I notice, though, that there are some divisions among you and there is strife among you. Now he said, let me tell you what I would like. My prayer is that you will have the very mind which was in Christ Jesus and that you will walk as he walked. We notice that there were four characteristics in that passage of the mind of Christ. Paul said, uh, if you have that mind, you don't ask that question. When God shows to you his will for you, you don't ask that question, well, what's in it for me? And when he shows you what his will is, you don't look around at the world and say, how will I look? How will I appear? And when God begins to reveal his will to you, you don't say, wait a minute, I deserve better than that. And you don't find in your heart an argument with him saying, yes, Lord, I know that you're God, you're Christ, and I should do what you want. But we uh, do not have that uh, dissenting spirit within us. Now, if you look at those four characteristics, you will notice how they how what the essence of each one is. When we come to the place where God opens up a door for us and say, now, wait a minute, what's the benefit of this to me? You will notice that the center is the eye. When God opens up his will for us and we say, wait a minute, what's the world going to think about this? You will notice that we're living in relation to the world around us as to what it thinks. And when we find ourselves saying, I deserve better than this, we're saying, wait a minute, God is not good. He, uh, he really ought to treat his child better than this. And when we think of ourselves and when we think of the world, and when we think of, wait a minute, is this the way God treats his children? With that notion, immediately there is an argumentative spirit within us. Paul says, you don't have to live that way. You can come to the place where uh, Christ is so central in your life that you can rejoice whatever comes to you. You can be victorious in it all because his spirit can come in and deliver you. He says, Paul says, I know it's possible because I have a fellow on my team who lives that way. And so he testifies for Timothy. He says, Timothy has reached the point where he does not think in terms of himself, but he thinks in terms of others. And he thinks in terms of others because Jesus Christ is the first passion of his life. And then you remember we mentioned that in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives his own testimony. He says, I no longer seek to please myself and get in life what I want. But my only concern is that other people may know Christ. 
So I'm ready to be poured out and spent totally so that a world can know Christ because if Christ's way was through a cross, then my way should be through a cross. And so I do not object to it and do not reject it. Now the theme which is spelled out in the, in those three sections of the word is basically a biblical theme that runs through the scripture very dramatically and very powerfully. I do not think I have to labor the point that what Paul is talking about when he speaks about our having the mind of Christ and walking as he walked, or when Jesus himself said that we should have that mind, what we are dealing with is that biblical theme of the difference between the flesh and the spirit. A life lived in the power of myself, and a life lived in the power of the Spirit of God. And the two things are very different. You will notice in the passage that we read from Romans, he speaks about how for those who live according to the flesh, think on the things of the flesh. Same word as he's used there, which is used in Mark when Jesus said, Peter, you don't think the way Christ thinks. Exactly the same word as is used in Philippians 2 when Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul is using the very same vocabulary. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, or to think the way the flesh thinks is death. But to set the mind or to think the way the Spirit thinks is life and peace. So what we're dealing with is two very different lives. One that's lived out of my resources and out of my judgment. And the other that is lived out of his resources and his power and out of his will and out of his judgment. Now, uh, you will notice very quickly the prime difference between them. The life which is lived in the flesh is the life that is lived out of the self. But a life that is lived in the Spirit is a life that is lived out of the very Spirit of Christ. So the one is centered in me, and the other is centered in him. So we get that biblical conflict between the, between the flesh and the Spirit. Now you will notice in the passage that I read the characteristics that Paul gives, are the things that go along with the one life as opposed to the other. He says, a life that's lived out of my strength, no matter whether I think it is in accord with his will or not, if it is lived and I am the source of that, then he says, that's not God's way. That's my way. Maybe a good way from the world's point of view, but it is not God's way. Now, he says, the life that is lived out of myself does not please God, because God has something infinitely better for me. The life which is lived out of myself is actually, he says, hostile to God. And you never know how deeply hostile our spirits are to God until God says, I want that last corner. And when he begins to deal with us about that last corner, then we begin to find how deep the resistance in us. But he says, the life lived out of the flesh is hostile to God, and he says it ends in death. That's more than simply eternal death. That is death to the deep things of God. Death to the joys of his fellowship. Death to the joy of being 
used in some measure by him in your life. He says, but now let me contrast the life lived in the spirit. It is a life. And it is a life lived not out of your life, but God's life comes into you. And then there is a new power that is within. A divine power that works within you. And he said it is a life of peace. It is a life of fruitfulness. One of the astounding things to me is, if you know Paul at all, I think you can feel some of the shock that's in it. When Paul speaks and says, let me tell you about this life. It is such a life, there is such a new power within you, that he says the just requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, you are as well aware, I suspect as I am, that there are passages in the Scripture where God's, where Paul speaks and says, when you stand before him, I want to present you faultless and blameless before him. Now, this is what Paul is speaking about here. And he says that uh, we can have a life that is acceptable to him, not in ourselves, but in, through his grace and power that comes within. And then we have offerings to present to him. At the end of the passage in 1 Corinthians, where Paul speaks about life in the flesh or life in the spirit, he says there's only one foundation ultimately. For in any life, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. You know, I dealt with that text, I suspect, for decades before I ever realized what it really said. I would hate to tell you how old I was, but I remember in later life I got ready to preach on it. Because all my life I thought, ah, there are different foundations you can build on, but Christ is the best. And then suddenly it dawned on me, that's not what the text says. The text says there's only one foundation. Any other supposed foundation is an illusion and a delusion. It will not stand the test of time or the test of eternity. There is only one foundation, ultimately, for a life that will stand. And so in that context, he goes on to say, now what are you going to build on that foundation? Some people build wood, some people build hay, some people build stubble, and the fires of life will destroy them, burn them, consume them. And when the life is over, there is nothing to show. But then there are others that in Christ build on that foundation. Through his spirit they build gold and silver and precious stone. Build those things that time, the fires of time, can never take away, or of eternity either, but they will stand. And so we will have something to present to him at the end that day. Now, there's an interesting illustration in Scripture that over the later years of my life has come to intrigue me because I never thought of it in this way in the earlier years. I think it may be the beginning illustration in Scripture of the difference between the flesh and spirit. Do you remember that uh, rather weird story of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis? When God had said to Abraham, you will have a son, out of that son will come a family. From that family will come a nation. To that nation I will give real estate, a land. And out of your seed will come a seed through whom all the nations of the earth will find blessing. And of course, that is a biblical projection of Christ. You will remember that uh, ten years passed and no child was 
born. Now, uh, Abraham was now 85 years of age, and his wife Sarah was 75 years of age. Uh, I remember having to read Hammurabi's code, the Babylonian law code, that prevailed as the legal philosophy and the legal system for Abraham's world. And I was amazed that I found that everything in that chapter was done exactly according to what the legal processes were supposed to be in that day, the legal concept. So I thought I heard a conversation. Sarah came to Abraham and said, Abe, you put God on an awful spot. Ten years ago, you started telling everybody in this country that we were going to have a son. And now you're 85 and I'm 75 and there's no son in sight. Now, don't you think we ought to help God out? Now, uh, there's a perfectly normal legal pattern for this in Babylonian culture. I will give you my handmaiden, Hagar. She will uh, bear a child for you. And according to the law, if she bears a child for you at my request, it will not be her child. It will be mine. And then it will be your son, and he will be the rightful, legal, legitimate heir. And so, out of him can come the fulfillment of God's promise to us. Then I think she said as an afterthought, by the way, when God told you that he was going to do this, did he ever mention me? Because I checked back and I found that the first reference to Sarah between the conversations between God and Abraham come after Ishmael is born. And I can see Abe scratching his head and saying, come to think of it, I don't believe he ever did mention you. Sarah says, it's perfectly clear what we're supposed to do. And so they did what all of their culture said was the right thing to do. And Ishmael was born. Now, it's interesting, God said, no, he's not the one. Because he's what you can produce. You don't need any of my help to produce him, and you didn't need any of my help to produce him. But uh, I want to give you something you can't produce. And so I think the first clear biblical contrast between what you and I can do and what God can do is set in the biblical narrative. And so you will remember that... uh, God made him wait 15 more years. When he was 99, at least 14 years later, God showed up and said, next year this time. I've come to wonder if he didn't make him wait 14 more years just to let him know that when that child was born, it was a child of divine will and choice and action, not one that can be humanly produced. Now, God wants something in my life better than what I can produce. And God wants something in your life better than what you can produce. And so the scripture lines out two ways, the way of the Spirit, where his Spirit comes in and enables me, cleanses me, fills me, enables me, puts his life within me, the very life of Christ, puts his mind within me, and I can think the way he thought. And the contrast is the way of the flesh. And the way of the flesh is a way that is not pleasing to God. It is a way that 
is ultimately hostile to them, and its end is death. Now, uh, but there's something in the Romans passage that intrigues me. In the Romans passage, he uh, speaks of only two ways. There is no middle ground. You can find it in the 6th chapter as well as in the 8th chapter. It's very clear. There's a way of the flesh and there's a way of the spirit. And he gives no third option. But the interesting thing is that uh, most of us live in a third option. Because we find there are many characteristics in our lives that don't fit the life lived in the power of the spirit and that are more like that live in the power of the flesh. There are a thousand ways it can be illustrated. You will remember that was the problem of the disciples after three years with him. They were arguing as to which one was going to hold which seat in his government, which chair in his cabinet. They were thinking of themselves and their position. Now, undoubtedly, they sanctified that by saying, if I just get the top position, I can be a great influence in this kingdom of Christ, for Christ said. Now, uh, that's not uh, an unfamiliar thing among Christians. You will notice that when Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, there is jealousy and strife among you, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, you're trying to make a third way, because uh, I can't call you spiritual, because there's conflict and strife among you in self-seeking. So he says, I have to call you fleshly, though you genuinely have been born again, because in the first chapter, he commends them because they possess every gift except the fullness of the true gift. Now, uh, why does Paul not speak about the realities that most of us experience? I remember a Methodist district superintendent graduate of the University of Chicago Divinity School who told me, he said, I was halfway through my district superintendency. And I thought, if this is all there is, it isn't worth it. So he said, one morning, four o'clock in the morning, I came down in my, st- in my living room. And lying on the table was a little book on the path to Pentecost. He said, I was teaching in one of our Methodist seminaries at the time, and I'd gotten the book to refute it. But I picked it up and began to read. And he said, my heart began to hunger. And he said, out of that experience, I came to a dimension of Christian living I had never known before. He's one of the most joyous persons I ever met. One of the most likable persons I've ever met because of it. Enthusiasm, fervent love within him. Uh, when he retired, he didn't retire. He's preaching now past retirement from the joy of serving Christ. Now, uh, uh, we, uh, most of us, many of, most of us have known what it has meant to live in that third way. Why did Paul not mention it? Because in the book of Romans, Paul is talking about what Christ died on the cross to do for us. And Christ did not die on the cross. For me to live what James called the double-minded life. 
Christ did not die on the cross so I could live what the book of Psalms calls a life where a person has a heart and a heart. One heart that wants to go one way and one heart that wants to go another. But Christ died on the cross so I can have one heart for him. Holy, fully, completely, totally, as best I know, as he leads me and as he shows me. Now, that's what Paul is saying. You may try to walk a middle way, but ultimately it won't stand because ultimately you're going to have to go one way or the other. You're going to have to say a total yes to him or you will find yourself backing out. Now, uh, that came home to me in a special way, dealing, talking with the man with whom I had the opportunity to develop a bit of a friendship. A rather, a remarkable man from Eastern Europe. He came from one of the more brutal communist dictatorships and he was pastor of a strategic church during that time and was harassed and persecuted by the government. Tragically, they stripped his church and his home of all of his books, left him with two. Some of you have heard me share this, but there's a second angle to the story that I want to get to. He said, uh, they began to interrogate him up to eight hours a day and up to five days a week, often with a loaded revolver cocked on the desk in front of him. And he said, it began to get to me. And he said, I found myself thinking about me and what's it going to do? Is it going to destroy me? So he said, one day I came into my study after a day like that, one evening, shut the door and fell on my face, sobbing my heart out, saying, God, I can't take anymore. They're destroying me. He said, I don't think it ever happened to me but three times, but I heard a voice that said, Joseph, get up. Read the book on the shelf. He said, no problem. There was only one on the shelf. So I pulled it down, and it was E. Stanley Jones' Abundant Living. He said, I turned and opened it, and the page that my eyes fell on were on how to live above your circumstances. He said, I read it. It was about Christ facing the cross, that he did not resist it, that he did not fight it. Now, he said, you see, I was going through a bit of a cross, but I was resisting it for everything within me. And I was saying, Lord, I deserve better than this. You shouldn't do this to me. He said, my thoughts were about me instead of about him and his will. And he said, the Lord said to me, you need to come to the place where you don't resist, but you embrace your life circumstances, no matter how negative they are, because my hand is in them. And he said to me very simply, I'll never forget, he said, and he did. I said, he said, I said to God, if you're, if I'm to do that, you must do something in my heart you've never done before. And he said very simply, and he did. He walked back into those interrogations and he said it was almost ludicrous, the change. He said, I'd been the one who was in trauma and I was the chief interrogator because he'd lost control of me. So one day in anger, he spun on me and said, Joseph, you're stupid. I guess the only thing we can do is go ahead and kill you. 
He said, I found myself saying, I understand that's your ultimate weapon. But when you've used your ultimate weapon, I get to use mine. He said, yours is to kill, mine's to die. When I die, I'm not a whit worse off than I was before. I'm infinitely better. But you, every tape of every sermon I've preached that's scattered across Romania will be sprinkled with my blood and you'll have a lot more of a mess of a time with me dead than you had with me alive. He said, uh, the interrogator angrily said, take him out. He said, later I found that they thought I was losing my mind, and he said, I couldn't even talk them into killing me. But then, this is the add-on to the story that I want to mention. A friend of mine who is the provost of a small Christian college in this country knew that Joseph was in this country, so he went to visit him. He said, I come from a small Holiness Christian College. Would you ever be interested in having a number of your young people study in a small college like ours? The European looked back at him and said, I'd be very happy to have them. And let me tell you why. He said, when the communists had control of our country, there was no middle ground. You had to go one way or the other. He said, uh, But now that the communist power is broken, there's a middle ground and you don't have to be all out one way or the other. He said, if we can't find something inside to make us holy Christ, we're going to become just like you. I would like very much for some of our young people to be in an institution that would teach them about the possibilities of holiness in personal life. Now, uh, That's the thing that Paul is talking about when he gives no middle ground in Romans. While what appears to be contradictory in Corinthians, he says that's where you're living, Corinthians. But the resolution is that he's saying to these Corinthians, the position you take is one that cannot be maintained. You will have to go one way or the other. Because ultimately, that's the deciding factor whether the life of God is within me through his spirit, filling me, cleansing me, and empowering me so I can live the way he wants me to live and walk the way he wants me to walk. Now, uh, that's the priceless privilege of every believer, where we come to the place where we no longer live the way we're thinking When we get our hearts totally surrendered to him, it's interesting how different our heads become. It's amazing the relationship between the head and the heart. And it's not the head that leads the way into fullness of truth. It is the heart that sets the mind, the intellect free to think thoughts that naturally it could never think. Who could think that the way to save the world was through a cross? That's what the disciples couldn't think. They were looking for a coronation. They weren't looking for an execution. And so when Jesus began to talk about the cross, it blew their minds. But when they came to the place where their hearts were totally Christ and possessed with the Spirit, then Peter Peter could stand up and say, this is what all the prophets told us was going to happen. Somehow there had come a remarkable illumination 
in those moments when the Spirit came and filled it. It's as Pascal says, the heart has its reasons, the head knows not of. But if we let him possess our hearts, we'll think thoughts that we never thought before, and we'll live a different kind of life. How much freer, how much more joyous, how much more fruitful, how much more significant. Should we bow our heads together for prayer? Uh, I'm sure that anyone walking close to Christ wants to be as close to him as he can get and know as much of his fullness within as he can. If you find that your life has some of a mixture of both, don't be surprised. My own conviction is that a person has to live a Christian life, has to walk with Christ a while before he finds and knows the deviosity of his or her own heart and the the need to have Christ center our hearts upon him through the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house, in your church. How privileged we are, people across the earth tonight who have no such privilege as that. Many who do not even have places where they can go for home worship, but we have the freedoms that come to us because of a heritage that's Christian that gives to us that liberty. We thank you that we have the scripture. How rich we are that we have it through which we can know even the very mind of God and the mind of Christ. We thank you for the little bit that we know about it, but we want to know more. And we know that you are its chief interpreter. So let us open ourselves to you, that you may bring us to that place where we think the way you think, so we can live the way you want us to live. And we will give you praise. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.